the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. You can tell there's an important regulatory meeting coming up because there's a huge amount of contradictory reports being pumped out right now. On paper, the shipping industry is pushing ahead with the twin-track project of near-term efficiency gains while politicians agree a clear regulatory timeline that unlocks investment, scales low-emission fuels and addresses ongoing concerns about future supply and demand. Hmm. In reality, the distant prospect of any meaningful political agreement is being routinely used as a pretext for widespread inaction, or worse, outright greenwashing, as companies attempt to keep up the pretense of progress amid growing uncertainty and the likelihood that an expensive delayed zero-carbon transition regulated by a fragmented patchwork of national regimes is the likely outcome. And yet, and yet, I'm actually going to offer you a case for optimism today. Because it seems the industry is not sold. The International Chamber of Shipping's recent survey of its executives published this week made clear that green fuel availability and infrastructure remain the top concerns for those holding off on investment beyond a hedge bet on bridging fuels like LNG. The hesitance to divest away from fossil fuels is a real problem for shipping's ability to reduce emissions in a meaningful way. But, but, there is another view. A convincing view, I would argue, that is backed up by solid research commissioned by the IMO itself that tells us that achieving a more ambitious decarbonisation pathway is not limited by the technical and commercial readiness of fuels and technologies, nor infrastructure and shipyard readiness. Now, we'll go into some of the details of that report later in Lloyd's List, but the point I'm trying to make here is that while fuels are and will be more expensive than the current fuels being used by the shipping industry, this is no longer necessarily seen as a barrier to their uptake for the shipping industry if the demand signal is clear enough. Now, interestingly, that's a view that is very much aligned to another report that's about to come out, this one being published by Trafigura, who are going to argue next week that there is potential to produce large volumes of so-called electrofuels in Africa, Asia, and South America, the global south to you and me. That will allow us to meet future demand from the shipping industry and provide countries in those regions with the chance to develop new export industries and create thousands of skilled jobs. The global south provides the supply, industry provides the demand, and we all get that equitable transition of a zero-carbon economy that we all want but until now, I've assumed, is out of reach. Easy, really. Mm. Well, inevitably, there is a catch, and it relies on progress being made inside the IMO this summer. Is that possible? Well, that's what I want to discuss. So, I asked one of the lead authors of the Trafigure report, Trafigure's head of research transition, Margot Moore, to join me on the podcast this week, along with podcast regular Tristan Smith, the associate professor in energy and transport at UCL, and co-founder of the hugely respected climate research body, UMass. And I started by talking to Margot about her research, which builds on Trafigura's 2020 paper that was the first to really publicly advocate for carbon pricing in shipping. I'd say amongst amongst the, some of the big takeaways that we we, we tried to to put in this new paper uh, is is very much, first of all, that this isn't a technology question anymore, right? And it shouldn't be a fuel availability question anymore either. And that's that's the, the, the big piece around showing the potential for producing low carbon fuels and particularly renewable fuels in the global south. Uh, and, and how can we tap into that extraordinary 
potential for producing low carbon fuels and make sure as well that the global south is involved in the decarbonization of shipping, right? Let's not have this as a two-tiered or two-staged decarbonization, but make this more global. Something else I think as well is, as you've mentioned, right, it's 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 the urgency. Uh, Trafficker is doing a lot of work around project development for low carbon fuels. We're working on uh, production of hydrogen, production of ammonia, and we're really starting to notice that the development cycle is behind these projects is, it's long. It's three to five years on average. Uh, so if we want to be on track to meet 1.5C as, as as set by the Paris Agreement and and adopt 5% low carbon fuels by 2030, then we need to have consensus and we need to have an agreement on carbon pricing by 2025. And... That is an optimistic take in terms of you know where we are. We we what, what you are setting out is the art of the possible here. Um, the global south could deliver that fuel availability. The industry could provide the demand, but the caveats you are putting in there are that we need a carbon price. We need a global regulatory timeline that is um, festooned with the clarity required to. Uh, kickstart the infrastructure projects that you have pointed out, you know, have a long lead time in terms of those developments. Uh, you know, on paper, the industry is pushing ahead with that twin track development of uh, efficiency in the near term, uh, whilst scaling low emission fuels and uh, addressing the ongoing concerns about future supply and demand. But, you know, in reality, uh, you know, the distant prospect of any meaningful political agreement is being routinely used as a pretext for widespread inaction. So, that's perhaps an overly negative view of, of where we are, but in the context of going into MEPC, where you know, we need to be mindful of the fact that we're only going to see at best an aspirational goal come out, how do you see those two um, opposing views marry up? I think it's 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 the job of, uh, how, how will I frame it? It's the job of, of people in the industry, um, and uh, you know, we were talking about the you know the younger generation to be as ambitious as possible and to be pushing this as hard as we can. You know, we as charterers, we believe we have a role to play in decarbonizing shipping, and we cannot just wait for uh, for the change to happen because otherwise, as you've said, right, it's it's going to take a really long time. There are some intermediate things that we're hoping to see this year, right? That, that to be just a lay on a on a, a more optimistic note. I think you know very much the understanding that we now need not just a fifty percent emission reduction by twenty fifty, but actually at least a net zero target by twenty fifty. That's that is something that is well within reach, and and also uh, setting some intermediate goals for for twenty thirty for twenty forty. Those are also within reach. What we would love to see on top of that as well is full life cycle assessment of emissions. And, and maybe Tristan can comment on that, but I really believe that that, that that needs to happen. We I think we can all agree to that. And it is probably more within reach than when we first started uh, speaking about this. Uh, well, Tristan, that seems like an obvious point to bring you in. You have appeared on this podcast multiple times talking about what is needed and why it is needed. Um, Traffic, you're to my mind, have done a pretty good job of spelling out what could theoretically happen. How realistic a, a view do you think they are setting out here? Well, it depends on what you're classifying the paper as. And I think its role is to explain what is needed. That doesn't necessarily mean that's what happens. And I think the 
the, the problem with where you're framing this, Richard, is that narratives are not forecasts. And what actually happens in practice isn't necessarily going to be the narrative that you hear from any corner of the shipping industry, whether it's the progressive companies like Trafigura or um, less progressive com com companies who are using this space pre-MEPC to say, this is very difficult, please give us a bit of breathing room. SBTI is looking a bit scary, so let's just do something that is feasible. That word feasible being kind of the, the, the more negatively framed, let's slow things down and do it at the speed that we know we, we probably could manage. But this is going to be a messy transition. And what you're referring to about the perhaps um, low likelihood of the IMO spelling out the clarity that ensures that it's a smooth IMO globally regulated transition um, looks likely. Um, but that doesn't mean that the picture that is in the Trafigura paper doesn't happen in practice. Um, or it doesn't mean that a version of that picture doesn't happen in practice. And I think actually the Trafigura paper is very useful at showing that one of the key risks here um, is to that of the global south of the developing world, because the consequence of a failure of an IMO-led transition is a messy patchwork of regional regulation. It's increasing private sector leadership or standards um, that drive the transition. It's increasing national protectionist policies, which you can describe the Inflation Reduction Act and the stimulus that that provides for investment in the US as one example. Like those are all mechanisms by which you can have some of the scale of investment, but they shift the centre of gravity to the developed countries and the countries with the economic power at the expense of the opportunities in the developing countries. And so it's not, it, it's really, what's the nature, what's the style, um, what does it really look like that is up for grabs now, not the sort of questions that are so fundamentally debated about whether it happens or not. And I mean, back to you, Margot, on that, that question of the global south, because this idea of this equitable transition, this is at the heart of what you are effectively laying out here. And it's something that we've talked about, but I think perhaps has been missed in the nuance of the debate and the, the importance of the global south in terms of how this plays out. That's key to what you're suggesting here, isn't it? Yeah, and, and just to be clear, I think you know we're we're barely scratching the surface on uh, the this this term of or this concept of equitable transition. I think really what we're just trying to highlight is that producing low carbon fuels in the global south is going to be one of the most competitive ways of helping decarbonize shipping because you have fantastic renewable power potential, you have land available, which is not the case in a lot of Europe, despite all of the focus on producing low carbon fuels in Europe, and to an extent, also not the case in the US. If you want to be exporting these fuels, you're doing them in the US Gulf Coast, and there isn't that much land available there either. Um, so to, the, to the, the magnitude, to the scale that is going to be required to decarbonize shipping, we really see the global south as being one of those most attractive um, areas to be producing low carbon fuels. And on top of that, our, our view, um, and, and we this, we're not the only ones thinking of this as well, right? But we we, we kind of echo the, this view that producing low carbon fuels in the global south, first for shipping decarbonization, first for, for export, is also going to help domestic consumption of these fuels. How do we help decarbonize local industries? How do we enable energy access as well for these countries? We can do that with those same fuels, right? Uh, so, so, you know, I, I, I want to caveat that we're, we're, we're not... We're not talking about the equitable transition in, in the way that it, it probably needs to be done, right? But we, we do recognize that there is going to be an extremely important role for the Global South to play if we want to decarbonize shipping. The other thing that is repeated in this report is that nothing happens without a price on carbon. That's been Traffic Europe's position from the start. 
the report that came out uh, initially was really one of the forerunners of, of, of stating categorically that you need a carbon price for the industry in order to, to plan uh, for that certainty, for those supply and demand characteristics to evolve in a way that makes sense for the industry. How certain are you, uh, how, how positive or negative are you uh, about the prospect of that carbon price and crucially, when you see that appearing, I think 2025 is the uh, the point at which you know you are suggesting it needs to come. Again, is that realistic? 2025 is definitely very ambitious, uh, and but but that's kind of the stance that we have taken as well with our with our previous white paper where we were advocating advocating for a price on carbon of 200 250 dollars a ton. Uh, so, I. You're speaking to an overly optimistic person because this is the nature of my job. If you're trying to help accelerate energy transition within a commodities trading firm, you have to also be very optimistic about your timelines. But I would say that the difference in our position back in 2020 and, you know, there was the complete lack of consensus on the need for carbon pricing. We, we weren't even there. And today... Today, there is already a recognition that a carbon price needs to happen. It's now more a question of when that happens and at what level that happens. Um, so I, I think 2025 is definitely ambitious. I, I would agree. But that's that's a, that's what we want to be pushing for. And that's what we want to be advocating for. I, I'm not convinced it's that ambitious. Well, that was what I was going so. to ask. I mean, do, do, do you think it is feasible? Yeah. Um, I think it's feasible to have something agreed by 2025. Entry into force would then be a subsequent period later, um, so maybe not until early 27. But to have something agreed that the industry can then say, OK, I can point to that and use that for my investment case. It's not infeasible to have that in 2025. One of the reasons to be um, to take that view is because actually this um, this virtuous circle of talking about about hydrogen investment and the need for IMO policy is working. And there are papers that have become available in the last few days online for the IMO meeting, which show a significant part of the countries that were previously resisting um, both the idea of 1.5 aligned ambition and uh, the idea of a levy or a carbon pricing regime. Uh, they're now switching and saying this is what we need, 1.5 and, and a levy. Now, that doesn't mean we have consensus, but it means that we now have a significant split in the group of countries that were previously acting to to obstruct some of um some of the progress um but that that let's just also remind ourselves that in june last year we had a meeting that concluded that what we needed was a basket of measures comprised of an economic uh, comprised of economic elements and technical elements referring to the both the market pricing mechanism um and the global greenhouse gas fuel standard that would be more of a technical measure that that explains the kind of volumes of of decarbonized fuels that would be needed over time and and that also associated with that we would need to enable a just and equitable transition so the concepts have all, already been circulating for 12 months um, in the IMO um, space and I think um, there's now a much better chance of them getting more explicit and more specified over the summer meetings which then gives us the springboard that we need in order to make very rapid progress over the over the subsequent couple of years to make the 2025 outcome um achieved in practice a, a lot of um sort of talk has been focused around mepc 80 i guess because it is the point at which that aspiration that ambition is is there and it will create headlines if we get something close to you know zero or net zero by 25th that will be the 
2050, that will be the headline. But effectively, what you're saying here is we need to look well beyond that. This is a, uh, you know, a dialogue that is going to have to look at global fuel standards, carbon pricing, uh, you know. But I'm also getting more optimism than I've had from you in some time, Tristan, that, you know, the political will may be shifting. Is that is that fair? Well, so there are, two, there are two areas of political will. One is in the level of ambition and whether or not that's 1.5 aligned. And I think it's possible that we don't get that as an outcome of MPCAT, even though I like it and the way that the traffic lays out the science-based target initiative levels of greenhouse gas reduction, 37% in 2030 and 96% in, in 2040, when those levels of ambition are at the upper bound of the IMO conversation. And we know that the likelihood is, therefore, that they get compromised, um, that the landing ground that we end up with is less because those are the upper bound. And I can't remember a debate where we have as an outcome the upper bound position. But the, but the, this is different from the alignment that I think is in, in strong existence on the idea of carbon pricing um, as a mechanism to enable the transition to actually convert it from being an ambition statement into an actual investment decision. And that that's the thing that the industry really needs in order to formulate its business plans. And that was never supposed to be an outcome of the MEPCAT discussion. I think there was some misunderstanding in some quarters of the industry that will get that clear signal. We won't. We'll get some language that will, as usual, need to be interpreted. But the agreement on the adoption of policy comes after what's technically referred to as phase three of the IMO's process, which only kicks off after MEPC 80 and is of undefined length. And some of the biggest risks, therefore, to the industry are that we get the process kicked off, but it takes three, four, five years. Um, and so there's a there's a real that's one area of risk. And the other risk is obviously that it gets kicked off and then the policy design comes out and it doesn't create the right incentive structures. It doesn't doesn't actually enable the investments to flow because lack of clarity or lack of um, enforcement mechanisms or whatever it is that is then really important at the detail stage. So those there it's not that we're out of the woods, but the pathway for that um, is is now looking more positive because, as I mentioned, some member states are shifting their position and it's made even the more stronger, the higher the numbers in the ambition are, because that obviously creates the incentive. It creates the reason for the IMO to have to act if there are high numbers it needs to actually achieve them. Otherwise, it loses face. Just to add on top of this as well, um, I mean, it, very often when you when you when you think about some of these vulnerable countries um, that also you know potentially stand to gain from a price on carbon, both from a, from a climate change perspective, a climate resiliency perspective, but also from generating new business opportunities, a new industry for export. Um, to me, I sometimes find it quite mind boggling that there isn't consensus amongst a lot of these countries to to advocate for carbon pricing because it's such a win-win for them. Um, and, and perhaps sometimes, you know, they don't realize this is an opportunity. So that that's, you know, one of the hidden messages is also this, right? This is an untapped potential opportunity for, for a lot of countries in the global South. Well, you, I mean, you single out Argentina as one of the countries that, you know, has a huge amount of potential and yet that is not reflected in the way they are positioning themselves inside the IMO debate. So there is that discrepancy there still, the short-term requirements of their economic development versus the obvious long-term potential of them developing, you know, new energy sources. Yeah, we, you know, we we, we talk a lot about 
the two the two different pockets of money, right? You've got your your left pocket in your pair of jeans, which is paying for health and insurance and climate catastrophe, and then you got your right hand pocket that's talking that's that's investing or developing uh, our economy, right? And and very oftentimes these two pockets don't speak to each other, right? So how do we make sure that there is better consensus amongst you know within the governments as well, um, and 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 connecting the dots um, that climate change is also, you know, we're not climate change, but decarbonization is also an opportunity for a lot of these countries. Let's end if we can on a, a more positive note. Um, Margot, I mean, in terms of the uh, the development that you've seen from the publication of the original paper where you set out this outlandish suggestion that carbon pricing and you know decarbonization was possible to where you find yourself now with this publication of the report are you are you optimistic that that pace of change we've seen in a relatively short period of time is now going to increase very much so um and and a big part as well of our of our white paper is the testimonies from from various different stakeholders and i think a lot of the messages you'll see there are extremely positive and extremely um yeah, I mean, ambitious for sure, as, as we need to be, right? Uh, the, the rate of change and the acceleration uh, is undeniable between 2020 when we first came out and, and this new paper coming out uh, in, this month. We, we, we just need to keep going. Uh, and, and right now, I think we've got a lot of the right people in the room uh, for, for, for these discussions and for, for this consensus to build. And, and we're, we're, you know, we're very hopeful as to what happens at, at MEPC and, and onwards. And Tristan, give me your most optimistic view in terms of what we can expect post-MEPC and the the pace of change. Well, I think, I I mean, I think MEPC comes out with net zero 2050 and some clarification about well-to-wake and um, net zero not being offsetting. And then there remains some ambiguity around 2030 and 40, but the the, that that framing of just moving everything a decade earlier than people thought it was, at least a decade earlier, then turns this not just into something where ships built today might, towards the end of their life, need to have a different fuel, but ships built today need to have a different fuel in five or ten years' time. And I think that that even if the IMO isn't concrete on its 30 and 40, the private sector's interpretation of this and the way that we then go into the subsequent five years becomes... Um, driven by the need to get aligned, otherwise you face massive risk. And so I think, I think the extent to which the IMO then damages the transition is is, is relatively limited. The risk still remains on the on the equitability of the transition, um, because we would even we would just make it so much easier to get investment into developing countries if there is a very clear framing from the IMO, and um, and that and that's the that's. I'm just repeating myself here, but that that remains the biggest risk of that. But I think the movement in the in the sector then is is well aligned with 1.5. I think. Just to, just to add on top of that, um, when it comes to the competitiveness of these potential low carbon fuels in the global south, I think just you know the the law of supply and demand is also going to play a big role in this, right? We we look at how much it costs to produce hydrogen in Europe and ammonia and methanol in Europe, and it's going to be really difficult for that for those fuels to to go into shipping. The, the really the only way to produce low carbon fuels competitively is going to have to be in the global south. So I think even with just what you said, Tristan, as to the indications of, of the direction 
uh, and, and, and the need for that carbon price, that should already be good enough for some decisions to be made for investments in uh, production facilities in the global south. That, that, that we see this on the oil and gas side, right? This is going to happen as well on, on low carbon fuels. Sadly, that is all we have time for this week. So we're going to have to leave Margot and Tristan there. But there is a lot more where that came from. And Lloyd's List subscribers can look forward to a deep dive on decarbonisation coming out as soon as I can write it. The Trafficker report is out next week. And having read an early draft, I can highly recommend taking a look at that as soon as it's available. I also referenced the International Chamber of Shipping's barometer report at the top of the show. That is available, and I would argue very much worth your time. For now, though, thank you to Margot and Tristan, and thank you for listening. Have a good week.